On CGRU in Toronto, you're listening to Built to Play. I'm Ramon Bali, And I'm Daniel Rosen. Look outside the window today and you'll be able to feel a certain energy in the air. The birds are chirping, the flowers are blooming, and that can only mean one thing. It means that our attention will turn towards a video game mecca. The Electronic Entertainment Expo, better known as E3, will roll into Los Angeles on June 11th. Which means that right now, video game fans are pretty excited. The trade show sets the tone for the next year. It showcases the newest trailers and upcoming blockbusters. More recently, though, the annual spectacle just hasn't had the same verve. This year, Sony won't even be there. Back in November, the company behind the PlayStation said they wanted to, quote, think differently this year. And they're just the biggest player to back out. Over the years, more companies have started to decide that this just isn't for them. They don't see the conference as relevant anymore. E3 has tried to compensate by having public days where anybody can buy a ticket and venture inside. But with every passing year, there's less to see. I think it's hard to convey just the power E3 once had and what it's lost. To be clear, neither of us have ever been to E3, but that doesn't really matter. It used to feel like the most important event in gaming. I'm curious, for you, Dan, like what did E3 feel like in, in years past, in decades past? I feel like when I was starting to get into like following video games really, really heavily, I was reading a lot of magazines. There would be a, mag- a month beforehand, it would be, look at all this stuff. Look, here's all our things, the, the stuff that might be at E3. And then the era of streaming came around, and it was this... It, it was a communal experience where everybody got together in, in an era where social media was very young, and we all watched these crazy announcements, right? The everybody remembers the the even the dumb stuff, right? The Wii Music era, the the you know the the hit the weak point for massive damage, the four hundred ninety nine US dollars, right? Even those silly memes, it, it felt big, it felt monumental. You know, it doesn't really these days because we get that kind of news all around the clock. It feels almost like this is now one event as opposed to what it used to be, which was the event. Absolutely. There was a time where when E3 was rolling in, it was on television. You could get it on Spike TV or whatever the equivalent was or G4. You could practically predict that there'd be some kind of before show and an after show. And it really felt like this communal moment. And, and, and again, a lot of the spectacle around it hasn't necessarily gone away, right? People still do, to a certain extent, their big stage shows and IGN and GameSpot and even, you know, Giant Bomb will do their big, like, pre and post shows. But where before E3 felt like it was the time of year that news was going to happen in video games, now it just sort of feels like any other time. We have Gamescom now. Gamescom being like a, a very similar show that yes, happens later in, in the year in, in, Europe. in, in Germany in particular. Yeah. And, and is at a much more convenient time for <laughs> in the game development schedule. But also we just have stuff like Nintendo Direct. We just have people making announcements, big announcements all the time because people have learned that you can just control the news cycle by taking over one day. One of the many reasons that E3 has lost some of that focus over the years, some of that attention, is because of the troubles facing the organization behind it. So the Electronic Software Association, the ESA, they've really been in a rough spot. They faced burnout, turbulent leadership, it's made some controversial policy choices, and all of that has made it hard to make the annual circus feel like it matters in 2019. Briar Crescente is a video game editor and journalist at Variety. 
Back in May, he released a report titled Inside the Disarray Facing the Video Game Organization Behind E3. In it, he details how an ardent Trump supporter led the ESA for 11 years before abruptly resigning last October. He joined me earlier this week over Skype. Hi, Brian. Hey, Armand. How are you? I'm doing fine, thanks. Thanks for joining us in Built to Play. You recently put together a comprehensive look at the way the Electronic Software Association functions. That's kind of the lobbying arm of video game industry. When when you look at the Electronic Software Association, before we get into kind of the trouble that they're in right now, and kind of in, in especially with, with the Electronic Entertainment Expo coming up, why does the ESA matter? What is its value in 2019? Uh, that's, you know, that's an interesting question and it's, it's current value, I think is a key part of some of the issues it's running into, but so historically the ESA, uh, is an organization that serves multiple functions. It, when it was originally conceived, it was part of, uh, some of the, the sort of scares going around about, uh, violence in video games during the time of Mortal Kombat, uh, the original Mortal Kombat in, in arcades. And uh, Congress was making a lot of noise about wanting to do their own sort of rating system, a government mandated rating system for video games. And video game, different video game companies realized this was going to be a huge problem. So they formed what would become the Entertainment Software Association. And in doing that, also formed the Entertainment Software Ratings Board, which is, is this group that now rates video games. And so at the time, it was it served a very important function, and that was to basically keep government out of uh, the control of video games. And after doing that, what it started to do was two sort of efforts. One was that it worked on lobbying. So it stayed in touch with government, uh, government affairs, uh, mostly in the United States, but also with other associations around the world. And essentially tried to make sure that uh, video games and the people who make them were able to exert their their right of expression and freedom of speech. Uh, and make sure that government didn't sort of step in and try to change the way games were made. The other arm of that, the other part of what it was doing and is doing, it is sort of promoting video games. And a a big part, probably the biggest part of doing that is that it runs E3, uh, which is the annual uh, expo of video games that occur in Los Angeles every year and is actually starting uh, in just a week, in less than a week. So... Where did things start to they, they start to run into trouble? One thing you point to is kind of when they kind of changed the guard from one of the founding presidents to Michael Gallagher. What happened with that transition? The organization, interestingly, has only had two leaders over its its history. Uh, it was formed in '94, so that's that's a little surprising. But the person who helped form uh, form it was a man named Doug Lowenstein, and he was the president of the organization up until uh, about 11 years ago, 12 years ago. Uh, So in 2007, he stepped down and Mike Gallagher came in. Gallagher came in uh, with with some interesting uh, background. He's a political guy. uh, And despite the fact that the game industry is sort of left-leaning, I think, Gallagher came in with strong uh, Republican ties. And this was, I think, uh, sort of because the, the idea at the time was that you had a lot of Republicans in power and you wanted to have someone who could kind of speak directly to them. So this, uh, that was sort of the idea. He came in and over his tenure, he was there for 11 years, uh, he did oversee some pretty substantial 
things, including most most importantly, the Supreme Court win. This is where the United States Supreme Court ruled that uh, video games are a form of protected speech and are indeed art. And throughout the notion that video games could, you know, you could go in and uh, mandate what people could or couldn't say through video games. Uh, so yeah, he he came in and I think initially there were no issues, um, but I think over time he sort of started to become out of sync with the industry as a whole because of both his Republican leanings, but also, uh, according to all of my sources, including a named source, uh, his management style, which was very abrasive from what I've been told. You, you say the word abrasive, but this name source that you bring up mentions that he has once said something along the lines of that, if, if you haven't burned people out within three years, then you aren't working them hard enough. How could you see that reflected in what happened at the, the ESA? Yeah, he, he seemingly had a management style that uh, burned people out. And, you know, he sort of bragged about that to people. Uh, he also said that he would pit people against one another to make them to get the most out of them. And I think what happened was that uh, started to erode internally the workforce at the ESA. It's a relatively small group. I think maybe at its peak, it had 40 employees. So we're not talking about a huge group. They actually seem to have a pretty high turnover. And I think over time that started to have some impact on their ability to do their job. Frankly, learning the things I did, I'm surprised that they've done as well as they have for as long as they have. Uh, I had sources telling me that sort of when all of this came to a head, that there were people who were planning on either going to the press, which some people did do, or quitting because they just couldn't work there anymore. Um, and obviously, when you have any sort of work environment like that, it's going to have some sort of impact on the output of that organization. How, in some ways, did the organization start to become uh, out of step with with some of the, the priorities of, of game companies? Uh, I think uh, you could see that most recently. There were a lot of sources who talked about sort of uh, the Trump era. Uh, Gallagher was a big fan of Trump, uh, is, I assume, still a big uh, fan of President Trump. And he started to sort of push that more within the organization. One really interesting example of this is the tax program that Republicans came up with. It was a Republican-led tax reform uh, proposal in 2017. And the ESA, which typically tried to not really side too vocally with uh, political movements like this, actually announced its support of the proposal. Backing up a little, the ESA gets its funding in two main ways. One is from E3 and the other is from its members. So if your company is a member of the ESA, you pay dues essentially. And that's what kind of keeps the company or keeps the ESA going. And some of these things like their support of the tax reform proposal had people rethinking their decision to join the ESA. So their memberships are starting to slow down a little bit. One thing um, that was interesting kind of when the they announced that they had that support for the tax reform. There was, I think, a certain level of response where it's like, well, the ESA is primarily supported by big companies like Activision. These are companies that probably would significantly benefit from the reforms that are being pushed by by the government at the time. Was the ESA in the position of these are the biggest voices of the room? Maybe we should go with them over more myriad voices who might be more left leaning. 
Yeah, and and that's actually it's another that's sort of the other half of my story, uh, where I talk about the current state of the ESA and and how its members perceive the the association. I think one of the big problems, and and this is tied less to Gallagher and more to the evolution of the industry, is that where back in '94, you know, the game industry was a handful of huge companies, uh, you now have hundreds, probably. Well, I don't want to overstate it, but you have a lot, a lot of video game companies out there and a company could be two people and they're making a lot of games and some of them have huge success uh, on their hands. And unfortunately, up until recently, or at least when I wrote this story, the people at the table, and I mean that literally, these uh, these are the members on the board. Uh, and that's like, I think, 12, I don't know off the top of my head, but roughly 12 uh, companies. They're the ones who really direct what the ESA is doing. And so that board of directors is mostly made up of people who represent companies like ZeniMax and Electronic Arts and Activision and Sony and Nintendo. Um, so you're right. Uh, what's happening is, to some degree, they are being responsive to these massive companies when these massive companies are no longer maybe the, the central focus of the game industry. There's this side of things, and then there's also the 40 or so percent of their their income, which comes from the Electronic Entertainment Expo. And that's been in, in a bit of a rough shape. What has happened to, to E3 that has kind of led it to, to, to lose its prominent role? I mean, I, th I think what's happened is that the, the game industry has changed uh, monumentally. Um, you have so many different things that have sort of intersected with what E3 does and did uh, that have changed so uh, completely that an ESA in its sort of old state is almost impossible. Um, you know, and that includes everything. There, there's like a laundry list, but like influencers is uh, an easy topic to talk about. And not just influencers, but just the notion that um, you don't necessarily need to bring all of the uh, decision makers be those retail uh, buyers or um, journalists into one place for one week to get your information out. You know, you can do what Nintendo does. You can do Nintendo Directs throughout the year and, you know, basically hold these mini press conferences every month and get your information out. Or you can have your own event where you own all the information because your audience is so big, uh, you don't need to sort of group up with other people to do it. And, you know, PlayStation was trying that approach for a while. And then you have the notion of how games are purchased. There are so many games now not purchased through retail stores that I think, you know, the GameStops of this world don't have as much say in what's getting into people's hands. And because of that, the importance of having an event where you can impress the Walmart buyer or you can impress the GameStop buyer isn't as important. And then on top of that, you've got like like I mentioned earlier, you've got like a, a, a million games coming out from a thousand developers. So it's not like you can have all those people in one room. And and then to top all of that off, uh, where you used to have, because there were less games, you used to have these distinct moments where most of the games came out, usually November. Because so many games are coming out now, because they come out in so many different ways, November has become basically 12 months of the year. There's very few months where there's not some big title coming out and, and alongside it, a whole bunch of other titles. So I think all of those things have undermined the value of E3 and sort of watered down its effect. And then you mix into that the notion that perhaps the ESA wasn't as on top of the ball as it needed to be to predict this. 
And while it was responsive in, to some degree, you know, they, uh, what, two years ago, I think, opened it up to the public, I think maybe they waited too long. You know, look at the state of E3 this year, no, well, next week. Uh, Sony's not going to be there. Microsoft is there, but not on the show floor. EA isn't there. They're actually doing their thing uh, Saturday and Sunday, so before E3 starts. Um, it's just a, a shadow of itself. I think you could do something to make E3 stick around. I, I have long looked at Gamescom, which is in Cologne in Germany, uh, held once a year, as a indication of or, or a model of where these expos need to go. This is a show that is a week long. It's held in the second largest event center in the world. And a few years back, I haven't been probably for five years or so, but I remember one year going and there were so many people in this convention center, they actually had to shut the doors because it was a fire hazard. This is the second largest convention center in the world. And they were having, they're running out of space. Typically, Cologne, which is obviously a massive city, runs out of hotel rooms. They create a tent city where people can go and camp out so they can come. It's open to the public and they have it split in a way that while it's open to the public, there's also an area that's open only to press that runs concurrently. So you get kind of both uh, best of both worlds. And I think that is the sort of thing that E3 is going to have to do. Like I said, it's experimenting with it. But you can't sort of dip your toe in this idea of opening to the public. You need to fully embrace that idea so that you can draw on a big audience, which will then maintain, uh, help you retain the the publishers who, you know, obviously want to get their games in front of that audience and allow you to grow. Uh, but right now, I think they're sort of they're stuck in the middle and they're kind of, uh, you know, I, this year is we'll see what happens. But it kind of seems like the, the worst of two worlds right now. Well, how, why would you say it's the worst of two worlds? What does it look like? Um, what do you expect it to look like when you go there um, next week? There are two halls at the LA Convention Center, West Hall and South Hall. Those are where you know a bulk of the show takes place. And I put together two images that show those, those two halls for 2017, 2018, and 2019 and shows the booths in there. And it is such a tremendous difference. Like they're there's just a lot of stuff missing. And, you know, you look at this year at West Hall, which is the one that used to be home to Microsoft and Sony and Nintendo. And that was sort of, you know, the AAA hall where all the really big things were. And you've got Nintendo, you've got Oculus, you've got Sega, you've got Indicate, but then you have this thing called the Unreal Garden. And you have something else called the E3 Sports Zone. I mean, these are, it seems like filler because they've run out of people to show off games or at least people willing to come there and show things. Do you have any personal nostalgia for, for what E3 used to be? The, of what the image of what it was in like the 90s and 2000s? Even a shadow of itself, it's still exciting. It's still got some stuff that's fun. E3 went through this thing, and I don't remember the year off the top of my head, where they essentially got so big and so insane that they had to pull the brakes on things. So, you know, everything was just so over the top that they actually started to come up with all these rules about how loud you could be, who you could be at the, sh who you could have at the show floor in terms of spectacle. Like there was one year and I'm not exaggerating where they had fire jugglers and people doing trapeze stuff. I mean, it was crazy. 
the ESA stepped in and said, okay, this is this is too much. You can't have a live band performing in the middle of the show floor. Uh, so they had to sort of walk it back a bit. And then right after that, a year or two later, was the sort of infamous exit from LA where they went to Santa Monica in this failed attempt at sort of reinventing E3. The, the Santa Monica show was people walking between hotels and checking out games in hotel suites. It was terrible. So they, after two years, they brought it back uh, to LA and it grew and it got bigger, but it never got back to that. You know, I don't know if I would have wanted uh, it to be to the point where you couldn't hear people talking and there were circus acts, but you know, right, right beneath that level, I think was fantastic. And it, it was exciting. And, you know, you ran into celebrities. There were always all these celebrities kind of running through the halls because they wanted to check out the games. And, you know, these booths had just these crazy setups with major statues or all kinds of other things going on just to attract attention. So it was kind of like walking through a video game carnival. And and that was exciting. Um, I, I Maybe one day we'll get back to that. But I think to do that, again, you have to look at what Gamescom is doing and rebuild it to be more public facing and open to the public and and then see who comes. Well, looking towards the future, what is the state that the ESA is in today? Gallagher resigned and then where has that left the organization more broadly? So uh, yeah, Gallagher left. Um, it's debatable if he resigned. He It sounds like he knew that he was being his his job and his effectiveness at the organization was being questioned by the board and the writing was on the wall and whether or not they asked him to leave or he just on his own decided to leave you know open for discussion you could say this though and this is 100% you know uh, uh, factual he left about 4 months before his contract ended which is highly unusual especially when you consider the fact that he uh, currently is uh, presenting himself as a consultant uh, and i only mention that because it stands to reason that, that if that's what he's doing, that he probably didn't have a job a job lined up when he left. Um, so it right. sort of points to him being pushed out. Uh, but getting back to your question um, about the current state of the ESA, in May, uh, May 13th, uh, about a week after my story ran, I think, the ESA announced that Stanley Pierre-Lewis, who was the interim president and CEO, is now the full-time president and CEO. The question now is, again, sort of twofold, looking at the two major things they do, are they going to be an organization that continues to run E3, if E3 is even necessary? And if they're not going to, and there's an argument for that, that he they, they basically shed E3 and double down on what their core focus is, which is lobbying. If they they don't continue to, continue, uh, to oversee E3, then what are they going to do in terms of income and, you know, in general on the lobbying side, how proactive are they going to be? Uh, a lot of the people I talk to who are uh, at companies who are members sort of bemoan the fact that they felt that the ESA didn't have the same voice or the, the size voice it should have for the industry, the size industry it represents. Obviously, the video game industry is enormous, but the impact it has in terms of uh, DC and uh, as a lobbying group is not actually that big. So I think there's some work to be done there. All of this is fascinating, but there's one part that I that I find, when, whenever I think about E3, um, E3 has a business power, but it seems to have diminished. But there's like, we, as you, like you have a nostalgia for it. I think a lot of people have a nostalgia for it. Is it somewhat 
odd that so much of the fandom is focused around like a trade conference? Like, do these events take up more cultural cachet than than they than they deserve? I think E three is stands on its own in that case. Um, this is a, an event that for, gosh, I don't know off the top of my head how long it's been, but for a very long time has been the place where every major game of the year is announced. And if you're there, you get a chance to play some of those games. And the, the final thing is nobody was allowed to go from the public. You had to be in the business or you had to be covering the business. So that kind of creates this idea of like it being this forbidden fruit, this sort of nirvana of gaming where, you know, if you could just get in where you're not supposed to get in, you would find all these secrets out and see all these spectacular things. And, you know, to be fair, Michael Jackson was there once, you know, helping to introduce Sega. So there, there is a lot of amazing things that have happened over the years. And so I think it's deserved that uh, it's earned that rep, but, you know, unfortunately now that the public can go, they sort of missed out on the, the heyday. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's fair that it has, it gets the attention it gets. Uh, the question is if moving forward, it's going to still deserve that attention. All right, Brian, I'd like to thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was Variety's video game editor, Brian Crescente. You can find his report in our show notes and by heading to builttoplay.ca. Or you can see more of his work by following him on Twitter. That's at Crescente B. From CGRU, this has been Built to Play. I'm Armin Bali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. You can follow us on Twitter at Built to Play. Or visit our website, builttoplay.ca. You can also find us on Facebook. But hey, if you really like the show, be sure to tell a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or literally anywhere that does reviews. It can really help us out. If you like today's show, send us an email at builtplayshow at gmail.com. It would be great to hear from you. And you can follow me personally at Florcon. That's F-L-A-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen. And remember, God bless the ring again. Thanks so much for listening.